0: Live for a session sometime. You can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques. So you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com/facilitation-lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical-meetings-quick-guide. Today, I'm with Denise Withers, Story Coach for the Planet. Denise helps leaders use stories to solve tough problems and create narrative change. She's also the author of the book Story Design: The Creative Way to Innovate, and the host of the podcast Forward: How Stories Drive Change. Welcome to the show, Denise.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation.
0: I am excited as well. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I picked up the book. Gosh, it's been a while. I think we first spoke. It's been months now, and we're finally are here doing the recording. So I'm really looking forward to digging in. And so far, my conversations with you have been really, I would say, inspiring. And I know we'll probably go even deeper now. So really looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, that's great. You know, there's so much you can do with stories. We could we could talk for hours.
0: Absolutely. So I, I guess before we get into kind of more current events, I'd love to hear how you got your start in the work of story design.
1: Yeah. So I guess, you know, I started back in the 80s. I studied radio and television arts and I ended up becoming a a documentary filmmaker for about 20 years. I was really lucky in my career that I I launched my career, you know, just a little bit before all the specialty cable channels started out in Canada, if anybody remembers cable, (laughs) and uh, Discovery Channel had just gone on the air. So they were really hungry for content. Um, So I was quite lucky to be able to get hired by uh, a lot of the different shows on Discovery Channel. And Spent 20 years doing documentaries on everything from life in space to endangered species to, you know, topics like HIV, AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was literally, you know, it really was the best job in the world. I was, I was uh, you know, traveling around the world, learning all kinds of new things and, and really helping uh, leaders and organizations uh, spread the word about the good work they were doing and make change. Um, It all kind of came crashing to a halt around, uh, you know, 2001, 2002 when reality TV took off. That just changed the business model for television and they weren't really interested in documentaries anymore. So I tried reality TV for a year or so and I I really just couldn't do it. And I, I literally woke up one morning and said, this is no way for a grown up to make a living. And I walked away from TV. And I ended up going to grad school, uh, a new program here in British Columbia, Canada, focused on interactive arts and technology. And this was when digital media was really starting to take off. And I thought I was going to look at how we use different kinds of media, you know, video versus audio for different kinds of learning, because I really loved the learning part of the work that I'd been doing. But what I discovered was at the time, nobody was talking about this thing called engagement. That was second nature for us in television you know if you didn't make your program engaging people would change the channel and the show would get terrible ratings and you'd be out of a job so i ended up doing a master of science on uh, what engagement is how it works so looking at the cognitive science behind it the um you know the behavioral science the developmental uh, psychology and then really really exploring you know how do you put that all together are there ways that you can actually design media or design experiences to be more engaging. And, and I ended up developing a set of guidelines for how you do that. And ironically, it turned out that the most powerful tool we have for engagement is story. And so as part of that research, I started exploring this concept of narrative intelligence. I also was exposed to the idea of design, which, you know, we're now, it's really popular, this idea of design thinking in business as a, as a problem-solving framework. And that's when it really all came together for me you know i realized that what i'd been doing during my documentary work was really this thing called story design where you have basically a communications problem or an education problem that you need to solve and you design a story to solve that problem so the process i was using as a creative was very similar to the process that organizations and businesses and entrepreneurs are using in design thinking So when I graduated, um, I ended up doing quite a lot of work in the post-secondary world because that's where design thinking was really starting to take off. Um, And I spent the next few years really weaving together all of these tools. So everything from storytelling, design thinking, strategic foresight, appreciative inquiry, behavioral economics, you know, starting to bring all those things together to say, how can we change the way that we design solutions to problems. So how can we change our approach to change? And that's really what I've been doing for the last 15 years and um so really it's it's led into this movement to go beyond just using stories as a way to influence people and as a framework for communication to using stories as a way to learn and solve problems and make change.
0: That's an amazing story <laughs> in itself and I think maybe the one thing that blows my mind the most is the epiphany that reality TV is really the thing you can point to as the reason why the television documentary really took a dive. And from my personal experience, like, I remember it, but I can't say that I pointed to that one cause, but it makes so much sense in retrospect.
1: Yeah, it was quite clear, you know, reality TV appealed to the demographic that the advertisers wanted, whereas documentaries appealed to an older demographic. You know, the um, younger demographic spends more money and anybody who thinks that the networks care about content is fooling themselves. The networks are in the business to make money. So if they could produce reality TV cheaper and get the demographic that the advertisers wanted, then they were going to be all over that. So uh, yeah, we really got kicked to the curb quite quickly.
0: And it's not surprising that you didn't find much passion in the reality TV space because it's really a void of much story
1: well uh, yeah I would ar- I would argue that I mean I've got one of my best friends is an editor on survivor and she's the best storyteller I know and she is a master at taking you know all of the stuff that's that's filmed in the course of an episode of Survivor, which doesn't have a story to it. It's just a whole bunch of stuff that happened. And her expertise is in taking all of that and finding a compelling story to tell. Mm. So I I wouldn't say that it doesn't have story, but there's no room for a a writer-director, which is what I was in the classical sense in that genre.
0: That is fascinating. The point that the story is almost fabricated from all these threads that were kind of collected versus... Documentary style is more around like showcasing the story that's kind of already there.
1: Yes. And in fact, you know, it, it's actually a great metaphor. The work that she's doing on Survivor is actually a great metaphor for what our narrative intelligence does. So, narrative intelligence is really our natural ability to learn and solve problems from stories. So, when you think about intelligence, you know, emotional intelligence or linguistic intelligence. Intelligence is is all about the ability to analyze patterns in a specific domain like math or language or sports and learn and solve problems from those patterns. And so when you think about the way that our brain works, we get bombarded with random bits of information all the time. And what our brain does, what our narrative intelligence does is is it organizes all those bits of information into the pattern of a story with a problem you know, a quest for answers and a solution. And then it packages that. And that's how we make sense of the world. Everything that happens to us, that's actually how we make sense of it. And so, you know, as an editor on Survivor, she's doing the same thing. She's taking all these random bits of information and she's organizing them into a story so we can make sense of what's happening in that situation.
0: It also reminds me, when you're talking about these patterns that we're basically identifying and applying, these models of the world that we know about or that we've learned It reminds me of our pre-show chat and how you were talking about how cultures contain stories. And being a part of a culture means that you kind of are part of these stories or you identify with these stories and they can influence the way you see the world. And it seems fairly similar. These kind of cultural stories or these stories that are aligned with the cultures and these patterns and models that we pick up through disciplines as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I firmly believe that culture is essentially just a collection of stories that define how we think and how we behave. You know, in a very simple organizational example, if you're sitting in a meeting and uh, somebody speaks up to question, you know, what their boss says and their boss tells them to shut up, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a story that everybody's going to remember. Everybody's going to file away in their own story database and that story is going to define the way they behave and it's going to influence whether or not they decide to speak up the next time in a meeting right and and so you can come up with all the nice sayings that you want about how your organization works but it's the stories that we tell each other it's the stories that we see it's the stories that we experience that we actually internalize and remember and use to guide our decisions and our behaviors and you know going forward
0: you know it's as you were saying that something really just emerged for me then you reinforce it further with these words like internalize and remember. Stories can be a memory device. You know, people talk about like memory palace, you know, planting these things that we want to remember in these visual kind of spaces in our mind. But also stories can be a way of remembering things. The, the way we tell a story, and the way we repeat that story. I know my mom has these stories about me being, you know, a seven-year-old that she likes to tell over and over and over again. <laughs> and it's a way of remembering you know those are the things that you don't forget because you kind of you've internalized them and you tell them,
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, again, my working hypothesis is that we keep absolutely everything we know about the world in packets of stories in our own personal story database. And so that's how we remember everything. And so the implications of that are actually huge because that means that, stories are actually the source of all of our knowledge, our creativity, and our innovation. Mm. Right? So, and then the, the piece that goes along with that, you know, what we're seeing, the neuroscience of stories is coming a long way because we're, you know, we're getting all these, these advances in medical imaging and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, what we're learning is that the more often you tell a story, whether you tell it aloud or you tell it to yourself, the more deeply sort of, quote, wired or rooted it gets. And that's one reason why it's so hard to make change. You know, when somebody starts a change initiative, whether it's within an organization, or it's personal, you know, I'm going to run five miles every day, or it's social, you know, we're going to get everybody to switch over to electric cars. Typically, what we do is we think that we're starting with a blank slate, we just look ahead to the future. And we say, this is the story that I'm going to create, I'm going to be a runner, I'm going to be an electric car owner. And what we forget is that people are already telling themselves stories about that situation, right? We're not starting with a blank slate. And those stories are typically very deeply ingrained. And so the only way that you're going to get them to change their behavior is to replace the story that they're telling themselves with one that they like better, one that shows them the path to a better future, And this is why we're failing to get people to take action on things like climate change, because the stories that we're telling are all stories of sacrifice and loss. They're Mm -hmm. not better stories. They don't offer us a better future. So we're not going to give up our old stories about, I like my car. I like my warm house. I like my 30-minute shower, right? We have to reframe the way we try to change the climate narrative. We have to figure out what people actually really want more of, and then Design the solutions. This is where it gets into change design. Design the solutions that they actually really want and will adopt. They're not going to do it just because it's the right thing to do.
0: You know, it reminds me too of some research that I've seen around resistance to change and how it's tied into identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, identity is just stories that we're telling ourselves about who we are and who we believe we will be in the future. <laughs> and and if this change is coming along that makes us think that we're not going to be the same way or be that same person that we always knew to be or always wanted to be, that can be really hard for folks. And if they're not willing to change that story or see how it might unfold differently then or you know, if we don't confront that then it's going to be, you know, really difficult to actually see the actual change through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about, so a lot of the work that I do is one-to-one coaching. Um, so narrative coaching at, you know, at an individual level for change makers and for leaders. And, and 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 that's exactly it. Who are you now and who's the person that you want to be? And what's the journey that you need to undergo to become that person? And identity is, you know, a really strong part of that. And, and it's really fascinating to me to see once people start to step into a new identity change happens really fast and quite often you know we see we see this a lot in coaching if somebody says you know I want to be I want to be the CEO I want to be the CEO and you say okay well what's stopping you from being the CEO right now and they list you know 10 things that they think are stopping them from being a CEO right now and in reality those are just stories that they're telling themselves they could actually start to be a CEO of their own company right now. There's very few actual real barriers. The biggest barriers, as you say, are the way that they see themselves right now. And they tell themselves they have to do all of these things before they can be somebody different when the fact is you can actually start to be somebody different right now.
0: I love that. I think in one of our earlier chats, I wrote down this notion of be the person you want to be. And so, reframing the story, you're giving yourself permission to do it.
1: Absolutely, and, and that's a really nice way to put it. You give yourself permission to do it, and 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 again, you know, we just we don't realize that the stories we tell ourselves are typically our biggest barriers. They're the things that hold us back.
0: Mm. I also remember you saying that in your one-to-one coaching that you craft a change story with them, and it sounds like that's what you were describing here with this kind of work around you know, what is it that they want to do and how they reshape that. So I guess I'm curious how that looks like when someone's crafting the story, what does that entail?
1: Yeah. So a change story is really, it brings together several different, you know, forms of stories that people call different things. So it's a, it's a leadership story. It's a future story. It's a pitch story. And it's based on, you know, kind of everything I've learned over the last five to 10 years. And and what I'm realizing is, you know, we hear a lot about you need to tell your story, you need to tell your story. And, and that work is often focused on telling the story of what you've done in the past. And what we're actually seeing is that people are more drawn to the story of where you're going. If you want to lead change, you need to be able to tell story, people the story of where you're leading them, why it matters and how it's going to make their life better. And within that, you do need to absolutely include why you're the right person to be able to do it, which includes some of what you've achieved in the past. But people are less interested in what you've done in the past and more interested in in where you're going in the future. So... What I ended up doing was looking at different story models and putting together my own my own story structure, you know, that I call a change story. And so it really, I think there's eight steps to it. And part of one of the things it does too, it, it also tries to weave you through the emotional flow of a journey where you have like highs and lows. So you start out with, uh, there's a problem, right? You're struggling, you know, whatever it is that you're struggling with, but things don't have to be this way. And then it moves right into the vision. You know, just imagine how much better life could be instead of where you are with your struggling, right? So what's stopping you? And then you get into obstacles, right? You're being held back by limiting stories that you're telling yourself about what is and isn't possible. And then that's where you really come in with your solution, which in classical storytelling is the magic gift. So you have the power to change whatever it is that's stopping you with with this magic gift and, and be able to make your future reality. And then this is where, you know, more of the pitch piece comes in. You know, you remind people that it can be scary to make change, right? So, you know, making change like this can be scary. How do you know you can do it? And then you move into courage or, or strengths, which is, you know, if it's individual coaching, well, you've done it before and you look at examples of how you've done it before. Or if you're trying to get somebody to follow you, well, the reason we know we can do it is because here's all the things that I've done before as a leader. And then you wrap up with, you know, reminding them of the urgency, why they need to take action now, really how crappy their life is right now and how much better it could be if they would just make this one change. And then you, you end with a call to action.
0: I love it. It has some parallels to some of the stuff from Nancy Duarte around, you know, mm-hmm. the way the world is and the way the world could be as far as really good framing for presentations. But it's so much more personally actionable.
1: Yeah, and it, it absolutely includes, you know, Nancy Tuarte, you know, came up with that framework by, by analyzing some of, you know, the most powerful speeches of our mm-hmm. time, like like Martin Luther King. And, you know, one of the speeches that I love is uh, is JFK, you know, talking about going to the moon. Um, and it's an example that I use quite a lot when I'm trying to help people understand the power of vision. You know, in his speech, he, he rallies people by saying, you know, Russia's kicking our butt. And if we can be the first ones to the moon, you know, I guarantee that we're going to become the technological leaders of the world. And so he he sets this great challenge, right? We're going to win the race to the moon. He has no freaking idea how they're going to win the race. But he tells the story to inspire a nation to go out and do it. Mm. Um, so he didn't spend 10 years figuring out the solution to the problem and then come and tell the story. He started with the story of this is what we're gonna do and galvanized a nation to get there. And that's the power of, of bringing story much right up to the beginning of your change design cycle. You don't leave it until the end when you're when you wanna just communicate, you bring it right up to the front. And so the work that I'm doing now with organizational clients is, we're using this change story framework to design the change initiative itself, to design the change strategy itself, and so what happens is once you finish your strategy, you've also got your story that's ready to go to to bring other people along with you.
0: Well, that makes so much sense because it, it reminds me of, you know, how a lot of companies, you know, they hear about OKRs and they think, oh, wow, that's going to be a silver bullet for us. We'll adopt OKRs and we'll have a really straightforward strategy and it'll be aligned and, and we'll we'll be so much more successful. And as Christina Watke so eloquently points out, OKRs are a strategy deployment vehicle. They're not a strategy definition vehicle. <laughs> and so while the stories can be really powerful, if there is no vision, if there's no dream to anchor it, then it's not going to be nearly as galvanizing. So it makes sense that you would start there and bring your clients to a point where they have that focal point to rally everyone around.
1: Yeah, and the most important piece of this is that you develop the change story with the people that you're trying to get to change. So coming back to, I'm just going to come back to climate because that's where I'm doing a lot of my work right now. You know, the vision that we're, we've we been trying to sell is it's this vision of, you know, a green future where everybody's, you know, driving electric cars. and And again, that in itself is not compelling. And so what we did, I'm working with the municipality here in Canada right now, We actually went out and we did story research. So we collected stories from the people that we want to change to find out what do they want more of in their life? What's holding them back? What are they really struggling with? And then we use that to craft a vision that they really want that also gets us to, you know, zero emissions. So the things that they're struggling with, like they want to, this is a suburban community, so they want to stop commuting. Nobody wants to spend four hours a day in their car, Mm. right? They want more time with their families, they want to save money, they want to be able to spend more time in nature. So how do we craft a climate solution that creates that vision for them, that, bring, that makes that their reality, and also reduces their emissions? Now that's something they're going to get behind. They're not going to support it because it reduces emissions. They're going to support it because it gives them the life they want.
0: That's amazing. You know, it shows that tie back to the design thinking, you know, or, or just the kind of understanding the problem that we're solving before we even begin to think about the approach.
1: Yeah, and and I think this is where, you know, the storytelling community, professional storytelling community, has really kind of done itself a disservice because over the last 20 years or probably, you know, longer, stories have been positioned as this magical tool to convince people, to influence people, to sell them on ideas. And what that's what that's made people think about is... I can have a crappy idea, but if I have a great story, people will buy it anyway. And what I'm saying is, especially when we start to talk about social and environmental change, that's not working. We have to stop trying to sell crappy ideas. And this is where the design thinking piece comes back in. We actually have to use stories to design better solutions. And then you don't need, you know, the, the really slick million dollar story to sell it because it's a good solution and it will sell itself.
0: So how does strategic foresight come into the work you do? You mentioned that earlier, and I'm a big fan and think it's super cool and not enough people are doing it. And I'm just kind of curious how how it actually shows up in, in the work that you're doing around maybe climate.
1: Yeah, it, it shows up. I mean, it, well, again, if you look at this change story, it shows up in two spots there. It shows up in the vision piece. Well, it shows up in the problems, too. The mm. problem, the vision, and the solution, right? So looking at... Trends, right? What are, What are the trends that we're that we're faced with? How can they inform the solution that we develop? How can they inform the vision of the future? And how can they help us better understand the problem that our audience is is struggling with? So, not a climate example, but a healthcare example. I was working with a, an organization that served a large South Asian population. And we were trying to look ahead to say, how are we going to change our, our care model so that we can engage this population better? Because it was a really big gap between the needs of the population and the care that was being provided. So I actually ran kind of a future workshop for them where I brought in all the trends that we were starting to look at. And I created several scenarios for them about possible futures for for this region of, of the province that I live in. And you know, so the solutions included things like um, what happens if there's an earthquake? What happens if, if we have uh, all autonomous vehicles? Because a big part of the population drive for a living. What happens if, uh, you know, the way that we all live changes where we're living in, you know, we're not living in multi-generational houses and things like that. And it was fascinating for me to bring in everybody that included urban planners and to see the shock on their faces when they started to think about the fact that the future even just a few years down the road is going to be different than it is right now and and you know we were able to bring in those trends I, I look a lot at the world economic forum they have great data available on on you know what's going on in trends but we have a really hard time envisioning the future we typically think of the future as looking exactly like today and so i find that strategic foresight bringing in the trends helping clients play around with those trends and connect them to what they're seeing in their own lives is a really nice way to get them to start to break free of the past and the the current situation that they're in and really let loose to imagine a better future.
0: Super cool. So I'm curious to come back to the model here that you have, which is the story specs and the story, you know, being comprised of the problem, the quest and the resolution. And I'm curious, when when you are helping people craft stories about their future, how does resolution show up in a story about the future?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So that story specs model is, um, it's really a simplified version of the hero's journey, because I find the hero's journey is just way too complex for anybody, including me, to work with. So it really boils down to, it's really story kind of boiled down. And so typically, if you're talking about a story in the past... When you start to try to capture or understand the story, you do it in a linear way, right? So you start with what was the problem you were trying to solve? What were all the things that you tried to do to solve that problem? So what was your quest? And how did the story end? And typically stories really only end in one of three ways, right? You succeed, you fail, or you die trying. (laughs) So the difference, though, is when you're starting to think about uh, a future story, you actually start with the end, and then reverse engineer from there. So, so it is a different approach from a design perspective in, in working with clients. And quite often, even though in design thinking, you often start up with, you know, what's the problem that we have to solve? I find more and more these days, I'm actually starting with, well, what's the vision? What's happily ever after? Where do we want to actually end up? And then how do we reverse engineer from there?
0: Mm, interesting and I'm curious once you do that do folks then take a more kind of explorative approach to think about how they decompose the pieces that get them on that journey
1: yeah I don't know if it's a more explorative approach but I do find it frees them up you know one of the truths of design thinking for me has always been you know problem definition is absolutely the hardest part and mm-hmm. and by starting with the future you're kind of you're kind of shifting the problem a little bit and moving it into the future but once you get clear on what it is you really want like you get really crystal clear uh you know a vision of where you want to go figuring out how to get there really isn't that hard like that's that's never been the thing that stopped us typically what stops us is that we're trying to solve the wrong problem or we don't really know what we're trying to create why it matters and so that's the bulk of the work that I end up doing is really trying to clarify those things. It's, it's that Einstein quote, right? If I, you know, what is it? If I had an hour to, to save the world, I'd spend, you know, the first 59 minutes trying to figure out what the problem is.
0: Yeah, figure out all the right questions to ask, right? It's like so mm-hmm. good. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think you're you're so right. The problem is often so misunderstood or people struggle how to articulate it. And so moving into that visionary piece especially if it truly is visionary work. You know, if we're talking about like, what's the next feature or what's the next market we're going to go into, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe an explorative approach where we research and learn and gather might, might make sense. But I love this backtracking. It's similar to how, you know, you might just take a big project and decide, hey, what's the deadline for these little pieces? Well, when does it all need to be done? And let's work our way backwards, like that backwards design piece.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there is some people call this backcasting. You know, I just reverse engineering. It's all all kind of the same thing for me. But the the other reason that I really love it is quite often, again, clients come in and they've got this laundry list of things that, you know, they have to achieve on their project. And most of the time, you know, 80% of the stuff on their laundry list, it turns out to be irrelevant. If you start with What you really need to have by the end, it changes the way that you design your solution. And and a lot of the stuff that's on that list can quite often fall off. And the beauty of that is it often frees up resources for you to do other things or invest more deeply in in the most important areas.
0: You know, another note that I wrote down was around, because you mentioned the word engagement, and I was thinking about connection, how stories create connection and alignment, And, you know, the JFK story that you told is 100% around alignment and connection, like people were focused and galvanized on this common mission. And I think that's super powerful when we think about, you know, change efforts inside organizations.
1: Absolutely. You know, you need to have everybody moving in in the same direction. And there's a great little anecdote that goes with the JFK piece, which is apparently a few years later, he was visiting one of the NASA uh, facilities. And stopped to talk to a janitor in the hallway, you know, and said, you know, so tell me what you do here. And the janitor looked at him and said, well, Mr. President, I'm helping to put the first man on the moon.
0: <laughs>
1: you don't get better alignment than that. And, and, and so, again, the reason I say you want to develop your strategy as a story is it also gives you space to help everybody who needs to be involved in your story figure out what character they are. What role do they have to play? Are they Frodo, you know, uh, talking about, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings? Are they Frodo? Are they the hero? Are they Aragorn, you know, a supporter? Are they, Gan- you know, Gandalf? Are they the wizard? What role do they have to play? And, and people really need that, that clarity and that, that understanding and coming back to identity, that sense of belonging. I'm part of this group. I have a a really important contribution to make. It's crystal clear to me why I belong and why this organization needs me.
0: You know, it's interesting, unrelated to what you were just telling me, but it just jogged a memory of mine, of a client that we were working with. And their story that they were telling themselves around this problem and around this project was so heavily laden with their internal jargon and their brand identity that they... Didn't really understand the story, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because this brandy word—I'm trying to be vague here—but this brandy word was like uh, meant different things to different people, especially as they applied it to the context of this project. And so, a lot of the work that we were doing was helping to unpack it and, like, wait, hold on, let's 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 remove the metaphor and let's remove the the fancy marketing sheen and just get down to like some real words around what we're talking about. And I'm just wondering if that's ever come up in your work with stories, because it seems like that the jargon was getting in the way of the of good storytelling,
1: yeah. every the details always get in the way. And so you know one of the first <laughs> things that i I do with clients is we build the bullet point story, right? So if the change story has you know eight steps to it, there's like one bullet for each step, and you can tell that story in one minute. and And you have to be able to do that first to get really clear on what matters. And again, that's where a lot of the stuff that doesn't matter falls off and frees you up. You know, one of the biggest barriers to change is all the bar- is all the baggage that we bring into it. So if we can drop that baggage as we kind of cross the threshold into the new world and the new identity and the new situation that we want to go into, now we have we have resources, we have energy, we have mental space to really focus on where we want to go as opposed to where we've been and all this stuff that we think is important and really isn't.
0: You know, that reminds me of a funny thing a mentor once told me. He said, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. he, he wasn't trying to, he wasn't telling me to lie or fib or make stuff up. But I think that my tendency was just to just to lay the facts on them so much that like, or to be so specific about what it was. And, and you know, he was like, is that going to catch people's emotions and minds and imagination? Like give them fuel to be excited about this thing.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, so my research, my research into engagements back in grad school revealed that actually the biggest factor in uh, getting and keeping people's attention was creating like a gap or a challenge for them, basically inviting them into solving a problem because we're just wired for that. And, and so once you invite them to solve a problem, they're going to stay engaged for as long as that problem remains unsolved. And then as soon as it's solved, the engagement ends.
0: Mm. Well, that reminds me of Cunningham's Law. Have you heard of this? No. How do you learn anything on the internet? You post the wrong answer. (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone wants to tell you you're wrong. It's also a great way to get children engaged. If you point at something that's clearly not an elephant and you say, that's an elephant, then they want to tell you that's not an elephant, you're wrong.
1: (laughs) Right, right, yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: So, I, I guess as we're kind of nearing an end here, I wanted to just um, hear from you uh, what your advice would be for someone who's wanting to get their start. Like, what's a good first step to start working in this area of story design?
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, the the easiest thing, actually, is to go out and do some really small, really simple Narrative analysis or, or story collecting and analysis, just so you can start to get a sense of of how powerful it is, and and so you can you can pick a, a question or a problem that you're dealing with and go out and even just talk to three or five people, you know, maybe outside your regular circle and get them to tell you a story about it. So so let's say you're trying to get people in your office to recycle more, you know, so you go out and and you talk to people outside your office and you ask them you know, to tell you stories about recycling, like how did they get started recycling? What's the best recycling experience that they've ever had? Where where have they seen great recycling done? And when you collect stories like that, even just if you get three or four stories, your narrative intelligence is naturally going to start to analyze the patterns in those stories and look for themes and look for commonalities. And that's where you can start to get great ideas that fuel innovation. If you'd only ever do this within your circle, you know, you're not going to get fresh ideas that way. You're just going to, going back to culture, you're just going to reinforce the stories that you're already telling yourselves. So that's one way to get started is just go out and collect stories about a specific thing that you're trying to work on outside of your regular circle and kind of start to learn what what other people have to say. The other thing you can do is next time you're you're planning something, whether it's a strategy or a program or even just a meeting, try actually planning it as a story, you know, using that really basic structure of what's the problem we're trying to solve? What are two or three things that we think we need to do to, to solve it? And, you know, what's our vision of success? What would happily ever after look like? And then build on that and say, who are the characters that we need to do this with us? What roles would they have to play? You know, what superpowers do we need them to bring in? And then, look at what are some of the potential obstacles, you know, who are the bad guys that we're going to have to fight? What are some of the potential barriers that, that we're going to have to come up against? And, and I think you'll find that it's a great tool for alignment for whoever's working on the thing that you're planning. And it's also going to be a great tool for helping you both be creative and then share share your ideas uh, with other people and get them get them engaged.
0: Awesome. Sounds like a great advice let's kind of bring things to an end here. And as we do, I'd love to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought and maybe um, share a little bit of information around how they can find your work and in the book, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, the final thought I think is to really start to think beyond just telling stories and really start to focus on identifying and listening to and analyzing and processing stories. And it, and, and as you do that, every time you hear a story, try to figure out what the problem in that story is. What's that person trying to do? What are they trying to achieve? What problem are they trying to solve? And that's really it's not just going to beef up you know your narrative intelligence. It's also going to make you a much better critical thinker and designer because you're gonna you're gonna develop your problem definition skills. So so I, I think looking beyond, What, you know, the hype is telling us in terms of everybody should be a storyteller, because that just makes us a whole lot of talkers with nobody listening and really spend some time focusing on developing your listening, you know, your story, listening, your story analysis skills and and see what you can learn from that. In terms of where to find me, you know, you can find me across social media. You can find me at my website, which is denisewithers.com, LinkedIn, Twitter, Uh, facebook instagram kind of all over the place most active on linkedin i think um and i've also got uh a ted talk that uh should be available as of march 2022
0: awesome and we'll have links in the show notes so you can just click straight through and definitely check the stuff out it's so good and denise it's been such a pleasure chatting with you really really great stuff
1: well thanks so much. I, I love talking about this stuff. you know if anybody has any questions I really encourage them to, to reach out. I'm always happy to hear you know what people are doing and and uh, it's a great learning experience for me to see how people are using you know their narrative intelligence and their natural ability to learn and solve problems with stories.
0: Awesome. Thanks again for joining the show.
1: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together, voltagecontrol.com.